The scripture that I'm reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. The word of the Lord. morning, everybody. You shall not kill. That's our sermon text. Four words. If we, if we look at the actual text, the, the Hebrew that Moses uh, received on the mountain, it's, it's actually two words. Lo ratzach. No kill. Uh, this week we're taking care of a, a little guy. He's one. His, his name is actually Enrique. Um, and he's a biter. And all week I've been saying, Enrique, no bite. So now I have this picture of the finger of God. Steve, no kill. It's like baby talk. I, I, I honestly thought of green eggs and ham while I was preparing the sermon. You shall not kill them in the morning. You shall not kill them late at night. You shall not kill them without warning. You shall not kill them at first sight. And it's, it's not like the room is full of murderers, right? I mean, you know, like, don't succumb to road rage in the parking lot. And we're good. This is baby stuff. Except, not at all. It is the, the, the simplest and most obvious commands that are, are the, the most difficult to understand and obey because they, they function like uh, when I go to do a favorite hike and there's one of those satanic signs across the trail that says, this route closed. And I can look at that and go, oh, well, I can't do the hike. And then I've successfully obeyed the law. That's one way to see it. But the better way to see that is an invitation to explore the rest of the universe, which doesn't say this route closed, is all still open. Thou shalt not kill is, on the one hand, a this trail closed sign, the trail that leads to murder, forbidden. But on the other hand, it's an invitation into all of life. You shall not kill is an invitation to live well. And this, this commandment reveals that to us. There's, there's probably many more than this, but we're going to look at, at four things the commandment reveals. Four, uh, I'm going I'm to go ahead and say revelations, but don't be confused with the book at the end of the Bible. Four revelations of this commandment. The commandment reveals the sovereign of life. The commandment reveals the sanctity of life. The commandment reveals the gift of life. And the commandment reveals the author of life. 
Number one, the sovereign. Number two, the sanctity. Number three, the gift. Number four, the author. So, so first revelation, this commandment reveals the sovereign of life. Uh, I'm not the sort of person who believes there's no such thing as a dumb question, so I'm going to ask a kind of dumb question. Why shall we not kill? Why is that trail closed? And you may say it's obvious human rights. Every single person has an inalienable right to life, and you can't take it away. And you know what? I would agree with you, but that's not the fundamental biblical reasoning for the commandment. That the fundamental reason in Scripture has to do with our rights, but it's not the right to life you do have, it's a right you don't have. You don't have the right to kill. It is not your place, because you are not the sovereign of life. Uh, Earlier in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, there's this guy named Joseph. And Joseph has ten older brothers... And Joseph is an arrogant little snot, as younger brothers sometimes are. I'm the oldest of three. And Joseph's ten older brothers do what really reasonable thinking older brothers do. They kidnap their little brother, sell him into slavery, and fake his death, as all of us have been tempted to do on occasion. And there's an elaborate story you can read about. It's the last quarter of the book of Genesis where uh, Joseph is sent to Egypt and he rises to power and then he's the only guy in the known world with food and his brothers come to him on the verge of starvation and Joseph helps them out and then Joseph has them come move down to live with him along with their father and they're all reunited. But then their father Jacob dies and the older brothers are concerned that Joseph has only been being nice to them for the sake of of their mutual dad. And so they come to Joseph as soon as Jacob has died. And I'm reading from Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they went, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. P.S., there's nowhere in the book of Genesis where that command is recorded. As far as we know, they're making it up. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Joseph has every reasonable right to be furious with and take vengeance upon his traffickers who sold him into slavery, who profited from his chains. And more than that, Joseph is in a a position of incredible legal power. He can pull this off, no problem. If he says to the entire Egyptian army, hey, off these dudes, it'll be done. He can do what most of us can only fantasize about doing. And this is what Joseph does. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph understood, of course, that he was not in the place of God, that for all the authority that he had accrued, the legal power that he had, for all of the moral right that he had to be angry at his brothers, 
he was not the sovereign of life and he had no right to kill. Because when Joseph, when any of us contemplate killing someone, what we're really thinking about is operating as judge of their life. To kill someone is to declare, I have decided your life is not worth living anymore. I have decided it can come to an end. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. That's what we do when we kill. And it is not our place. We have no right to do that. Each and every person on this earth was created not by you, but by God. He alone is the sovereign of life, and He alone has the right to kill. You do not. Now, that's all well and good, you might say. I don't have any plans, actually, to commit murder, so I'm not worried about this. But as Jesus points out, as Andy read earlier, we can pass this kind of presumptuous judgment We can act like the sovereign of life without actually pulling the trigger or swinging the sword or frying the french fries or whatever it is that brings a life to an end. We can do it just with our words. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? He's quoting the commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment because they presume to judge. They will be judged. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister is liable to judgment. And whoever insults their brother or sister is liable to the council. And whoever says to their brother or sister, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. We can engage in this kind of judgment, in this kind of what Jesus, he flat says it, is murder without any physical homicide. Consider, consider for a few minutes the case of a woman who has an abortion. She has broken the sixth commandment. She has done what she had no right to do. Perhaps, certainly, with the help of a physician, perhaps, maybe even probably, under the coercion of parents or a husband or a boyfriend or a lover, she has declared to the child, your life is not worth living. I, I have anticipated the costs of you living to me and to you and to others, and I have decided you're not worth it. That's what she has done, and And you might say, well, I don't believe that the the life was actually a human life. And the whole point is you're not the sovereign of life. You don't get to decide that. You might say, well, in this actual special instance, it's up to her because that life is inside of her. But she's not even the sovereign of her own life. She didn't create herself. So she has broken the sixth commandment. But if we presume to take that one fact about her and pass judgment on her, 
we break precisely the same commandment. If you, if, if you are a woman who has had an abortion, then, then you have sinned. Your sin is not beyond God's grace, which is higher than the heavens are above the earth. But you have sinned. If any of us, any of the rest of us, take that and reduce you to an abortionist, then we have sinned in exactly the same way. None of us are the sovereign of life. None of us have the right to commit the sort of judgment that is always murder in God's eyes, whether a human heart stops beating or not. We are not the sovereign of life, so you shall not kill is an invitation to live well by living humbly, by living submitted to the one who actually is the sovereign of life. The commandments begin, remember, I am the Lord your God. Which means, subtext, you are not God. Only I am the sovereign of life. So, you, you and I, we have no right to kill. None whatsoever. And we have no right to, to look at a life and say, you know what? You're not worth it. I've decided. But we do, we do have a right to life. We don't have a right to kill, but we do have a right to live. Our lives are sacred. And this commandment does, in addition to revealing the sovereign of life, reveal the sanctity of life. It absolutely reveals the sanctity of life. And it does that because of the sovereign of life. Uh, a few years ago, a book came out entitled Go Set a Watchman. It was written by Harper Lee, who uh, you may recognize as the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the, the great and best-selling books of the entire 20th century. And, and after that, Harper Lee had not written for decades And then finally, another Harper Lee book is coming out. And there's all kinds of publicity, and this is wonderful and exciting. We finally get some more of her writing. And then the reviews start to come out. And they all start something like this. Please understand, I have the utmost respect for Harper Lee. But the book was objectively terrible. It was unfinished. It didn't make sense. And you know what people did? We bought the book anyway. And we read it. Because we all knew, whatever the review said, the book was worth, I forget, $16.99 or whatever they were charging. And the five or six or ten or twenty hours it would take you to read it. Just because it was written by Harper Lee. The The actual quality of the story and of the writing did not matter. Because of who the author was, the book had value. Your life is that way. Because you were created 
by the sovereign of life, because you were made in the image of God, your life carries dignity, it carries value, it carries worth, and it has nothing to do with the actual quality of living. No matter what, because of who your author is, because of who your sovereign is, you have a life worth living. No matter what, if you are black or brown or white, no matter what, if you are male or female, no matter what, if you are rich or poor, no matter what, if you have two PhDs or you didn't pass kindergarten, no matter what, if you are delighted and satisfied with your circumstances every day, or if you are miserable to the point of considering suicide, your life has value because of who your author is. The commandment reveals the sanctity of life. And what we do when we presume to judge is we declare that person or that group of people, they don't really carry the image of God. It's not really a Harper Lee. There's something less than that. And we've all done this, right? We all have individuals or groups of people for whom we have done this. Um, I grew up in in another college town, the son of a professor uh, in the sort of uh, the, the enlightened South, in Chapel Hill. And so I knew from very early on that one such group of people were unapologetic racists. If you were a bigot and you knew it and you were okay with it, then you didn't really count. I just knew this. It was obvious. And then my first job after college, I worked for a a green home builder called Blue Ridge Energy Systems, and I was the carpenter's helper on, on the main crew And I worked with three other guys, and they were all from Barnardsville, North Carolina. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details, uh, but suffice it to say that uh, their default way of referring to African Americans was nigger. And that was, on no week was that the most offensive or bigoted thing they said. They were unapologetic racists. And one Saturday morning, when Vanessa was six months pregnant with Haley, our first child, and we were getting ready to move, they showed up at my apartment and spent the whole day dragging futons and beds and washing machines upstairs to our new apartment. These guys, they worked with integrity and skill. They would go home from long 10, 12-hour days on the job to take care of dying grandparents. They brought food to people in their neighborhoods who didn't have any because i got to tell you, the economy of Barnardsville is not thriving. They used their skill as carpenters to do side work, not to make profit, but at steep discounts or flat out for free in order to help out people whose homes were falling apart. They bore the image of God. And I am in no way excusing their racism. Racism is evil. It is itself a form of this kind of judgment. It is a violation of the sixth commandment. But my dismissal of them was the same thing. Everyone bears the image of God. 
every life is sacred, no matter what. History, history teaches us that when we forget that, we are capable of anything. In the early months of 1994, if you turned on the radio in Rwanda, you would have heard impassioned calls over and over again to stamp out the cockroaches. They weren't talking about exterminators. They were talking about the Tutsi people group. And beginning on April 7th of 1994 and continuing for a few months afterwards, 800,000 Tutsis were dragged from their homes, were raped, had their heads chopped off with machetes, were burned alive, were dumped into mass graves. Because the other people of Rwanda had convinced themselves these aren't real image bearers. Their lives are not sacred. They are cockroaches. And so such behavior was okay. There's a reason that Nazi propagandists referred to the Jews as vermin and drew them in cartoons with exaggerated rat-like features. Because we need to forget the sanctity of life in order to do the worst things we are capable of doing. You, you and I can do this in, in ways that aren't quite as newsworthy, perhaps, but are just as dangerous. Uh, I, I've lived part of my life in, in contexts and in communities where the word liberal is pronounced liberal. And I've lived other parts of my life in, uh, in contexts and in communities where uh, the phrase social conservative could only be uttered with a dramatic eye roll. Social conservatives. Same thing. Same forgetting of the sanctity of life. This is, this is why. Look at the front of your bulletin. This is why we talk about how Every human being on earth is either to us a brother or sister or a neighbor. Those are the only possibilities. Because those are words that rightly convey the dignity, the sanctity of each and every life. We dare not use any kind of word or phrase, even as a joke, the old ball and chain that reduces the sanctity of the lives around us. C.S. Lewis said it this way in in his essay, The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Those those little words, you shall not kill, reveal the sanctity of each and every life around us. They reveal the sanctity of our own lives. And they are an invitation to live well by respecting the fact that every person you encounter, no matter what, 
bears the sacred image of God. So this, the commandment reveals the, the, the sovereign of life, that we have no, no right to kill, that we are not sovereign. The commandment reveals, second, the, the sanctity of life, that each person around us is sacred. This is shaping up into a really good argument for the, uh, the modern ethic of just stay in your own lane. Whatever you do, do no harm, right? All, you're surrounded by all this sacredness. Just don't bump into it. But if, if we accept that, we totally miss the, the third revelation here, which is the gift of life. The gift of what life really is. And to, to start us off on this, I want to talk about the first the first murder in Scripture, the first violation of this commandment, which was committed by Cain. Awesome job. Cain was another big brother. Big brother's not doing great in the sermon so far. And he had a little brother named Abel, and uh, Abel was God's favorite. Abel made an offering, and God thought it was the best thing ever. Cain made an offering, and God sort of said, yeah. Points for participation. And this made Cain mad. And so he killed his brother. Natural big brother reaction, right? Apparently mom and dad weren't watching. And the, the Lord, God, the sovereign of life, comes to Cain immediately and says, Cain, wh- where is your brother Abel? And Cain lies. says, I don't know. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? And in the deafening silence of the text, here, the heavens and the earth and the grass and the rocks and the trees and Abel's blood and God himself crying out, yes! Yes, you are your brother's keeper, of course! You're made to keep him, to protect him, to love him, to watch over him. You have been given this gift of life that you might share it with him. What do you think brothers are supposed to be for? Life is a gift. Being an older brother is a gift. And God had given it to him and he threw it away. God gave Cain life and he disregarded it and tried to use it for his own means. Every gift has a purpose. Every gift has a point. They are not just thrown out there. Even obnoxious gifts have a purpose. My wife was a waitress for a year in the South. And I can't tell you how many times instead of a tip, she got something that looked like a dollar bill, but actually had four verses from Romans on it. And we already had a copy of Romans. And $2.43 an hour is not cutting it. But that gift, even that gift had a purpose, a clear and explicit purpose, right? The gift of life has a purpose, and the gift of every single life has the purpose of giving life. The gift God has given you of your life has the purpose of giving life. Think think about something that is alive but is as, as simple as an orange. Right? piece of citrus fruit. Worst case scenario for an orange, it falls to the ground, it rots, it dies, nothing grows. 
And even in that scenario, the orange gives itself back to the soil and nourishes the soil and prepares the soil to do what? To give life. Or perhaps much better than that, the orange gets put in a box and shipped to Winco and then sold to me at a reasonable rate. And I get to eat it and I get to enjoy how delicious it is and it gives me life. The, the sugars and the ingredients of the orange break down in my body and give energy, give life to me. Or even, even better than that, the orange fulfills its full intended purpose and it falls to the ground and the seeds within it consume all of the fruit and convert that into what? Into an orange tree that then itself produces more oranges and gives life. The purpose of all life is to give life. Be fruitful and multiply. This is the gift you have been given and it has this purpose. And to say, hey, I'm staying in my own lane. I'm not doing any harm. Is to completely and utterly waste the gift of life. If, if you're a surgeon and, and there is before you someone who is sick or injured, you can't say, hey, that's not my lane. I'm not going to do any harm here. No, you were given life to give life and you're going to specifically and deliberately do harm to that patient. Cut them open. To give life. If you're a teacher and you have a a class full of numbskull middle schoolers, Tim, (laughs) you can't say, hey, I'm just here to read from the textbook. I'm staying in my lane. I don't want to do any harm. You have to crash into their lives again and again and again, and not just on the subject of honors biology or earth science, but on matters of character of spirit, of the purpose of living. You have been given life in order to give life. If you're a farmer, you can't buy a nice big piece of fertile Willamette Valley land and then commit to doing no harm and hang out and watch Netflix. No, if you're actually a farmer, you know just how much of your life has to be given. Just how early the cows need milk. Just how often the earth needs to be tilled and watered and then harvested and then taken in and threshed and a hundred other things that I don't know because I'm not a farmer. You have to give your life to give life. If you are retired, then you can absolutely and gloriously be done punching the clock and getting paid. But as long as you are living, you are not done giving yourself for the sake of the living. Life is a gift. And you have been given it in order that you might give life. This this one little forbidding, don't go this way, you shall not kill, is an invitation to turn around and expend your own life in the giving of life. To obey this commandment is to understand yourself to be a steward and a shepherd of all that is living around you. To be fruitful and multiply in a million, million ways. The commandment reveals the full gift of life and invites you to live well. So over the course of the last 20, 25 minutes, 
we've gone from this is a piece of cake to, uh, I don't know, to forget it, impossible, right? Is, is there anybody in the room who's prepared to account for every single one of their days and say, yeah, absolutely, I spent that in giving life. I have obeyed the commandment. Thank goodness that the last and most perfect revelation of this commandment has nothing to do with us and nothing to do with our obedience. The commandment, it does reveal the sovereign of life. It does reveal the sanctity of life. It does reveal the gift of life. But mostly, it reveals the author of life. That passage that Andy read that I quoted from Matthew Matthew 5, about how we were all murderers. If you back up a few verses, Jesus introduces the whole train of thought by saying this. Don't don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I'm not here to get rid of you shall not kill. I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Now that that sentence in, in a very long book full of very loaded sentences, that one might take the cake. The idea of Jesus fulfilling the law is incredibly rich and complex, but one one thing that it means is that Jesus himself was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus was the sort of life the law was intended to guide us toward. That Jesus lived the life that these commandments call you and I to live. That Jesus himself lived well. That Jesus took up the invitation to respect the sovereign of life. You you and I, though we are not God, every day we presume to be God and we pass judgment over things we hear on the news, over people in front of us in traffic, over our family members. We rebel against God's sovereignty and try and claim it for ourselves. But Jesus, He didn't do that. He Himself was in very nature God. He had every right to do that, but instead He submitted Himself to the sovereign will of His Father all the way to the point of death. He did not want to go to the cross. And He was not forced to go to the cross. He chose to obey His Father and go to the cross. Jesus lived well. More than that, Jesus He fully and completely respected the sanctity of life. Every single person that Jesus encounters, He treated them as an image bearer of God. Whether it was the the powerful Roman governor or or a a blind beggar on the side of the road. Whether it was a, a respected leader of the synagogue like Jairus or a woman whose name we don't even know. Who had been bleeding for 12 years and nobody would touch. Jesus respected the sanctity of every one of their lives. He was so interruptible. No matter how tired or exasperated or in a hurry he was, if he came across an image bearer, he honored them. And you are an image bearer. And he honors you. He honored you to the point of dying for you when he walked out of the grave. He honored you by inviting you into the same kind of life. Even now, as he sits on the throne of heaven and governs the very universe, he honors you. And when you pray, he does not think, oh, 
I have so many other things to do. No, he is the true elder brother. He thinks, I get to hear from Glenn. Let's sit down and talk. It's so good to be close to Kathy. Jesus honors the sanctity of every life. And Jesus honored the gift of life by giving his own life for us. You and I, we are constantly killing. Constantly wasting the gift of life with our presumptuous thoughts, with our internet memes that are kind of funny but also vicious and dismissive to the people who disagree with us. With our casual conversations with people who are safely like-minded. We can say whatever comes across our minds. We kill image bearers of God, not Jesus. Jesus, rather than dealing death, submitted himself to death. And in doing so, he broke death's power. When he walked out of the grave, Jesus declared, death is done. I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. And I invite you to come and live with me forevermore. Come and live well from this day until your last day, and you will have no last day. For with me, there is life eternal. The commandment reveals the author of life. Those little words point to life in Jesus. Point to living like Jesus. Those little words invite us to join Jesus, the author of life, in living well.